Welcome to the weekly sermon at Gateway. My name is Jason McNabb, and this is the weekly sermon from Gateway Community Church. We're excited to be able to share inspiring and meaningful messages to help you grow in Christ. To learn more about our ministry, please visit us at gatewaycrc.org. Now let's dive into God's Word together with this week's message. Um, I want to start this morning with a story. One of my favorite stories growing up was Walt Disney's Finding Nemo. Anyone else here like that story? And one of the elements of the story is we have the father, Marlin, and he loses his baby fish son named Nemo, and he has to cross all obstacles in order to go and get him back. It is an endearing and redemptive story. But one of my favorite elements of the story, and this is going to sound kind of weird, is right at the end in which all of Nemo's friends who are in a fish tank, they're in their fish tank slavery, and they're trying to be liberated out into the deep blue sea. And so they have this grand idea. They're going to perform a plague. See where I'm going with this. And they sabotage the tank filtration system. And once it gets really bad in there, the owner takes all of these fish and he puts them all in individualized baggies. And he's cleaning out the tank. He's not paying attention. And then each of the fish try to make the great escape. They roll out the window, down below, up the curve, over the road, up the sidewalk, and down into the deep blue sea. And finally, all of them are free, and they start chanting and hooting and hollering, yeah, we're free! But then one fish realizes something. They're still not free, are they? Because they're still in water-filled bags. And so one fish looks at the other and he says, now what? By the way, that's called a segue. So what we're going to do this morning is we're going to look at Exodus chapter 14. If you have your Bibles, I want you to try and find that passage. Because that humorous little story further illustrates something that we have been looking at for the last number of weeks as we've been walking through this series. Namely, that the people of Israel have been learning that there are four cups of salvation. Our Jewish brothers and sisters to this day, they affirm that there are four elements of freedom. And they have experienced a geographical freedom from Egypt out into the wilderness. They have experienced a physical liberation. The shackles have fallen off. But they've also experienced a legal or a jurisprudential freedom in that they are no longer slaves to Pharaoh. But there is a fourth dimension of freedom that they have not yet experienced. And that is the spiritual liberation that only God brings. And so in many ways, we have this story right before us. The people of Israel, they're totally, totally, radically free. They are out into the wilderness, no longer enslaved to Pharaoh. But the question that remains is this. Are they really free? Are they really free? And this is where we pick up the story. The people of Israel, for the last 400 years, living in Egypt. And for the last century, they have been enslaved in Egypt. They've been crying out to God, deliver us, save us from our freedom, God. And God delivers them through 10 plagues. 
And what did we hear last week? The 10th plague in which the great destroyer, the angel of death, he comes down and he takes the life of the firstborn son of every human being and every beast that does not have the mark of the blood of the lamb on the doorposts. And I hope you see this, church, that this is the gospel laid out even before Jesus comes along that we see that regardless of whether or not they were Egyptian or Hebrew, whether they were moral or immoral, whether they were religious or irreligious, it didn't matter. The only thing that mattered was the blood of the lamb. And then we see it perfectly with Jesus. He is the pure and spotless lamb. It's John the Baptist who says, behold the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And so we see it right here. This is Jesus in this story. And I wanna share with you on the front end that one of the really difficult elements of living in the West in the 21st century today is even Christians have a hard time accepting that message. Because what we really think is, yes, I know Jesus died on the cross for my sins. Yes, I know that he made a way when there was no way. But really, I know that God grades on a curve. And the more moral I am, the more righteous I am, the more good deeds I can do in comparison to others, that is going to be my golden ticket into glory. And here it is, the great refutation against that countercultural message. That is the lie. This is the gospel. The blood of the lamb is what saves sinners. And so here's Pharaoh, who was said to be God himself, who said he would never let any of the Israelites go, who said, who is God that I should obey his voice, who even after nine plagues does not relent. He finally, after the 10th plague, relents. He says, I've had enough. Get out. And the people of Israel are free. But again, the question before we get to the parting of the Red Sea is, are they really free? Really? Are they free? Something I've been laying out before you for the last couple of weeks is this. The human heart, both then and now, is we want all the liberation that God brings without any of the worship without any of the avodah. That's the Hebrew word for worship, for work, for service, and for slavery. All those definitions is the same Hebrew word. We want all the liberation that God brings. We want none of the worship. And so when Pharaoh asks this question, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice, that question haunts us because it exposes the idolatry of our own hearts. It reveals to us that we're a lot more like Pharaoh than we care to admit. And, as we're about to see, we're a lot more like the people of Israel than we might care to admit. So I've shared with you the same principle in a variety of different ways over the last number of weeks. The freedom that we have without the Lord is a desert. The freedom that we have without the Lord is darkness. The freedom that we have without the Lord is death. And today we see the freedom we have without the Lord is kind of like a fish in the deep blue sea filled up in a plastic bag. Is it really freedom without worship? Is it really freedom without worship? 
That's what we're gonna look at today. So if you got your Bibles, Exodus chapter 14, starting at verse one. And a quick note to our kids. We have some fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth graders here. Remember, if you brought your Bible today, you get to dunk Pastor Marcel and Jaden. Oh, he's, he's already out helping. You get to dunk both of them today. Not me, not me, them. Okay, that's my note, that's my encouragement. Then the Lord said to Moses, tell the Israelites to turn back and encamp near Pi-Hahiroth between Migdal and the sea. They are to encamp by the sea directly opposite of Baal-Zephron. Pharaoh will think the Israelites are wandering around in the land in confusion, hemmed in by the desert, and I will harden Pharaoh's heart and he will pursue them. But I will gain the glory for myself through Pharaoh and through his army, and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. So the Israelites did this. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, Pharaoh and his officials changed their minds about them and said, what have we done? We have let the Israelites go and we have lost their services. Now, here's a quick question for you. Hopefully you remember this from a few weeks ago. Do you see that word services? Do you know what the Hebrew word is there? Avodah. We've lost their services. We've lost their slavery. We've lost their work. We've lost their worship. That's what Pharaoh is bringing to mind here. This is what our Jewish brothers and sisters hear every time they read this passage in the original Hebrew language. And I find that just so remarkable. They've left. We got to bring them back. We got to bring their worship back to us. Pick up at verse six. So he had his chariot made ready and took his army with him. He took 600 of the best chariots along with all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. The Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, so he pursued the Israelites who were marching out with boldness. Some of your translations say they were marching out defiantly. So Egypt during this time was not only the breadbasket of the known world, they were not only the economic superpower, they were also the military superpower. So much so, you can read a story in 1 Kings chapter 10, if you want to read it, it's verse 26 to 29, in which we have King Samuel and he, or Solomon, sorry, King Solomon, and he wants to bolster their military defense. And you know what he does? Even though the story is 500 plus years into the future, he goes to Egypt and he buys their chariots. So this is just how advanced militarily Egypt is at this time. They will continue to be a superpower for many years to come. And they pick up and they start marching out uh, to catch up to the people of Israel, more than 2 million people, men, women, and children who are walking very slowly because they're bringing all their belongings with them. And as you learned last week, as they were leaving, the people of Egypt were so afraid of the Hebrews, they said, take our jewelry, take our gold, take our goats, take our lambs, take, take everything that we have, just leave us, please leave us. And so they're carrying everything, all their houses, and they are marching slowly. But here's the question that we have to ask. The people have, of Israel 
have experienced the miracles of God, have they not? They've seen the parting of the Red Sea, or they've seen uh, the Nile River turn into blood. They have seen a leprous hand become clean. They have seen um, Moses' staff be turned into a snake and be turned into a staff again. They have seen the miraculous power of God where Egypt is brought down to its knees through 10 plagues and they are marching out defiantly and with boldness. And the question is, how are they gonna respond? Are they gonna put their trust in God or are they going to quibble with fear? Here's what we see in verse nine. The Egyptians, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots, horsemen and troops, pursued the Israelites and overtook them as they camped by the sea near Pi-Hahiroth, opposite Baal-Zephron. As Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up and there were the Egyptians marching after them. They were terrified and cried out to the Lord, They said to Moses, was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us into the desert to die? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you, leave us alone. Let us serve Avodah, the Egyptians. It would have been better for us to Avodah, the Egyptians, than to die in the wilderness. (laughs) It's kind of ironic. What did we just read at the end of verse eight? The people of Israel were going out boldly, defiantly. God has delivered us from the hand of Pharaoh. Nothing can happen to us. And then they turn into a wet noodle. They're filled with fear. And I also want you to notice, where do they place the blame? I I find this truly fascinating. They know that it was the hand of God, not the hand of Moses who performed the 10 plagues. And yet when they start to make their accusations, they lay it out against Moses, not against God. And so we see here that the people of Israel, they are in total and utter denial. They are being delusional. Like how did the story of Exodus start? We hear the story of how Pharaoh and Egypt put into slavery, the people of Israel, and they cried out to God for deliverance. Lord, save us from our calamity, from the persecution that we've experienced, the whips on our back, the slaughtering of our baby boys. Save us, God. And God does so. And then they say, we wanna go back. (laughs) We wanna go back. How ridiculous is that? And yet, once again, I hope you brought your mirror Bibles here this morning because this is exposing something about the nature of the human heart, of the sin nature that we have, the traitor within, that all of us act this way. That we want all the liberation that God brings, but when we encounter resistance, do we not oftentimes want to go back to the old life? The old self? The placebos that can carry us through? And God says, I want something more for you. And so there's no prayer with Israel, just panic, just panic. And so we, we discover something about the heart of the people of Israel. Yeah, they've left, they've left Egypt. Yeah, the shackles have fallen off, but they're still slaves. They're still slaves. They're just slaves to something else. They're slaves to their own fear. 
They used to be slaves to Pharaoh, and now they're slaves to fear. And one of the main themes of our modern discourse today is freedom. We want to be totally free. We want to be undeniably free. We don't want any obstacle or any shackle whatsoever upon us so that we can live our own lives the way that we want. It reminds me of Invictus. This is written by uh, William Ernest Henley. He says this, In the fell clutch of circumstance, I have not winced nor cried aloud. Come at me, world, what do you got? Under the bludgeonings of chance, my head is bloodied but unbowed. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Man, that pumps us up. Like, I want to listen to that before I go to the gym and work out. That's exciting stuff, except it's a lie. It's a lie. Because what we realize is we always, always, always worship something. That's the principle I put in your note sheet. Everyone worships something. You can be a slave to the Egyptians. You can be a slave to fear. You could be a slave to something else. But we always serve something. I've shared with you the, the Charleston Heston quote that you've heard numerous times, let my people go. And yet the interesting thing is, and it's worth noting, that never is uttered in scripture, not once. God never says it, Moses never says it. Instead, every single time, check your Bibles, it says this, let my people go so that they may worship or avodah me. Let my people go so that they may worship me. So what God is saying is people aren't totally radically free unless and until they're under my worship, under my tutelage and my protection. Then they're free. Anyone here like Bob Dylan? Right? He's got a famous song, you gotta serve somebody. I got, I got the words up on the screen. Bob Dylan. Like, this isn't Chris Tomlin, okay? This isn't Keith Green, it's not Francisca Bettistelli or your favorite worship artist. This is Bob Dylan. And he says this. You may be an ambassador of England or France. You may like to gamble, you might like to dance. You may be the heavyweight champion of the world. You might be a socialite with a long string of pearls, but you're gonna have to serve somebody. Yes, indeed. You're gonna have to serve somebody. Well, it may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you're gonna have to serve somebody. Man, and if Bob Dylan said it, it's probably true. So let me give you a couple examples of this. Um, you could live for your children. You could live to serve your kids and they get the altar of your worship. You place them up on that pedestal and you want the best for your kids. You want everything for your kids. You give them your best every single day. And I'm telling you, if even something as good as your children gets the pedestal of your heart, it is going to leave you dry and withered and disappointed and deflated because they cannot sustain your worship. They were never intended to do that. In the same way, let's say that you give your avodah over to your work and you say, you know what, the most important thing I gotta do is provide for my family. I gotta work hard, I gotta put in the hours, I gotta make sure that I pull up my bootstraps and do everything that I can. I'm telling you, if you give your business your avodah, here's what's going to happen. If things turn out poorly and you lose your business, 
and your identity was all wrapped up in that, you're gonna have an identity crisis. It's what we call a midlife crisis these days, isn't it? Or even if things go perfectly well, it still will not sustain your worship because it was never intended to. I've shared with you before that most people in the world would love to be Tom Brady, right? He has more Super Bowl rings than any other NFL player. He's worth almost a billion dollars. He's married to a supermodel. Everyone knows his name. Man, he's got the life, doesn't he? And yet I've shared with you a video before where he's basically saying, there's gotta be more to life than this. There has to be more to life than this. And here's a guy who gets more Super Bowl rings on average per year than Steph Curry scores three-pointers. Look it up. It is incredible the things that he has done and he is still looking for something more. I'm telling you, no matter what you give your avodah over to, if it is not the Lord, it will not sustain your worship. Because God created everything that you see. Your children, your business, your work, your family, your health, your influence, the creation that we see, all of these things are meant to be gateways into seeing who God is and to worshiping him with gladness. But the issue with our own hearts is that we start to worship God's created things and it results in breakdown. And God is saying, I have something more for you. And so Israel, at this point, has only encountered freedom from. They have not yet encountered what we would call freedom to. They're still in the desert. And I, I don't want you to miss the symbolism here because most of you, you know the end of the story. You know that God's gonna part the Red Sea or what I'm gonna call the Sea of Reeds. They're gonna march through on dry ground. And so we're gonna see that the sea is divided, but you gotta see the symbolism, what the author is pointing out here. The people of Israel are divided. And this ground that they're about to walk through is this liminal space in which they have to make a decision. You've drank the first three cups of salvation, will you drink the fourth? Will you take the spiritual freedom that only God can give? And the question for us today is, who will you serve? Who will you serve? Look at verse 13. Moses answered the people, do not be afraid, Stand firm and you will see the deliverance the Lord brings you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight, you, fight for you, you need only be still. And in rapid fire, we just received four commands from the mouth of Moses, but ultimately from the mouth of God. And we need to review them for our lives today. So here's the first one. Moses starts by saying, do not be afraid, stand Firm, stand firm. I think it, uh, if we're honest with ourselves, there are a number of different responses that we have when life goes to hell in a handbasket. When we have some sort of encounter in our life, the, the death of a loved one, the loss of a business, a sin that we just can't get a hold of in our own life and it keeps creeping up in our life, there's a couple of things that we do. The first one is we try to outrun God. We say, God, I can take it from here. I needed your help back then, but I'm feeling quite good myself. We try to outrun him. 
The second thing, which we've talked about already, is we try to revert back to the old life. We said, I I didn't sign up for this, God. I never thought life would turn out this way. I'm not interested in following you in obedience. I'm going to run backwards. And the third response is we just fall on the ground like a wet noodle, and we throw up the white flag, and we say, I can't do this anymore. I I can't run forward. I can't run back. I, I just, I can't do this anymore. And in the midst of those three responses... God says, you need only be still. Stand firm and see the deliverance that I will bring about in your life today. And that's the second one. Witness the deliverance of God. Moses says, fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of God. And so again, see, these are not very active responses, are they? They're very passive Here's what he said, stand, open your eyeballs. Stand and see what I am going to do for you this day. And once again, here's the gospel. Here's the gospel. Your salvation is not contingent upon your effort. It is all entirely dependent upon God. The same thing that we see With the blood of the lamb on the doorposts, it's all about God's effort, not yours. His work, not yours. But will you put your trust in him? Will you see God for who he truly is and what he can do? And so the people of Israel, they're in denial about their present. They say, we could serve the Egyptians or we could die. But I think, I think there is a third option that they could have in this moment. They've seen the power of God. They've seen the miracles of God. They've seen the 10 plagues of God. I think what they could say to God is this. We need an 11th plague. We need one more. And we trust God to do it. Certainly God didn't do everything that he has done up to this point just to bring us out into the wilderness to cream us. And so maybe the best thing that they could have done in this moment is got their chair ready, sat down, made some popcorn, and said, this is going to be good. God's going to do something. This is going to be good. And yet, like I said, they're a wet noodle. They are filled with fear. And even in the midst of the disobedience of God's people, God still actively works. Your salvation is not contingent upon your effort. But how can we do this? How can we do a better job of this today? I think one of the things that we need to see as Christians who are looking at the gospel of Jesus is we need to be like that Olympic rower who has their eyes fixed on their past, on the start line, as they proceed forward toward the future, that they see the faithfulness of God, which sustains them in the midst of their future. But what do we do? We're constantly looking at our future. We're constantly on social media or watching the news, filled with angst, filled with anxiety. Oh my goodness, the world's going to hell in a handbasket. What are we gonna do? God, God, things are getting worse. And God is saying, be still and see the deliverance that I will bring you this day. Number three, don't consider your old life as an option. Don't consider your old life as an option. Because every single one of us in this room has a sin nature, I can very easily share with you that here are some of the vices that we use when life gets really hard. For some of us, the placebo we use might be 
alcohol or substance abuse. We might say, I, I just can't, I, I kind of numb the pain, you know? And so I got to go back to this. I need something that's going to soothe the pain. Or it could be a lingering sin. It could be something that we watch on the internet over and over again. Or it could be our desire to have people like us. We want to influence others. We want to be well-liked. We want others to think the best of us. And so we look in all these different areas in order to sustain our identity. And God is saying, look to me. I will give you what you need. Not these placebos. Not the old life that is now dead. Look into the future and what I have for you. And the fourth command is this. Be still. Be still. And so what do all four of these responses have in common? They are not action-oriented verbs. Stand, witness, don't look back, be still. And so he says, in effect, do nothing and see what I will do this day. So in a world that says, do, 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 work, 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 God says, as he puts his hands in your face, he says, be, be, be. See the deliverance that I am bringing about this day for you. You need only stand firm. You need only watch. I am sovereign. I am in control. None of this surprises me. And I will bring about my glory and your good. You need only trust. That's the same story for us today. Look at verse 19. It says, Then the angel of God, who had been traveling in front of Israel's army, withdrew and went behind them. The pillar of cloud also moved from, the fr in, uh, from in front and stood behind them, coming between the armies of Egypt and Israel. Throughout the night, the cloud brought darkness to the one side and light to the other side, so neither went near the other all night long. <laughs> I just got to wonder out loud, if there's going to be a time when we are in heaven in which we get to go down to the local uh, blockbuster heavenly store or the, the local heavenly Netflix store and we can take out the DVD of our own life and watch it on rerun from the perspective of God. Some of you are like, that sounds gross. That needs to be burned. But just, just hear me out for a second. Imagine if we had the eyes to see how God has been creating a hedge of protection for our life in ways that we just can't understand. We don't have the eyes to see it, right? We're deep in the weeds. We just, we don't understand the sovereignty and the inner working of God, but one day we will. One day we'll get the bird's eye view and we will see all the ways in which God has created hedges of protection for us and tears will well up in our eyes and we will see the power and the sovereignty and the love and the grace of God. And one of the things I love about this story is we get to see it. We get to see what God is doing in the midst of this terrible, terrible day. Verse 21. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and all that night the Lord drove the sea back with a strong east wind and turned it into dry land. 
the waters were divided and the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with a wall of water on their right and a wall of water on their left. The Egyptians pursued them and all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and horsemen followed them into the sea. During the last watch of the night, the Lord looked down from the pillar of fire and cloud at the Egyptian army and threw it into confusion. He jammed the wheels of their chariots so that they had difficulty driving. And the Egyptians said, let's get away from the Israelites. The Lord is fighting for them against Egypt. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea so that the waters may flow back over the Egyptians and their chariots and horsemen. Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and at daybreak the sea went back into its place. The Egyptians were fleeing toward it, and the Lord swept them into the sea. The water flowed back and covered the chariots and horsemen. The entire army of Pharaoh that had followed the Israelites into the sea, not one of them survived. But the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with a wall, a wall of water on their right and on their left. That day the Lord saved Israel from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians lying dead on the shore. And so the symbolism here of the sea doesn't just end with the deliverance of Israel. There are two stories that need to come to mind every time we hear this story. The first one I've already referenced to you, and that is what we call the suzerain vassal covenant, do you remember that when I brought all my kids toys and we laid them down on both sides? The suzerain vassal covenant is a commitment that two parties make when they enter into a contractual agreement with each other. They would slaughter animals, cut them in half, and allow the blood to flow in on the inside. And then they would march through the slaughtered animals, signifying if I break my end of the covenant, then what has happened to these animals may it also happen to me. But in this particular story, in Genesis chapter 15, God marches through the animals in the form of a smoking fire pot and a blazing torch, but Abraham does not. What's the plain main thing? God is saying this, if I break my end of the covenant, then may what has happened to these animals happen to me. But if you or your descendants, Abraham, break your end of the covenant, then may have, what has happened to these animals also happen to me. Either way, it's my blood. And so as the people of Israel are marching through this with both sides on left and right, they are pent up. The judgment of God is being sustained as they march through on dry ground. They are being reminded of the promises of God from Genesis chapter 15. And then when we see Jesus, it all comes together. There's Jesus his right hand and his left hand stretched out, holding back the judgment of God as there he hangs on a tree so that we can march through on dry ground. And the second image that we have to take note of here is our baptism. What do we think about when we baptize believers and their children we are thinking about the covenant promises of God that have been fulfilled in Genesis 15, in Exodus 14, and in the Gospels of Jesus Christ, that there was no way and God made a way. There was no deliverance and God brought deliverance. 
There was certain death, and Jesus brought life. And the waters of baptism signify the washing away of our sin so that we can walk through on dry ground. And it also communicates to us that we are sanctified priests. I've shared with you that um, scripture is filled with pictures to help us understand more deeply what God is intending to communicate to us. And this is one such story. So I wanna give you the eyes to see how Jewish Christians hear this story. When I was in Egypt this past May, I was able to see Ramses' temple, which started with the pylon gate. We have a picture of this. Here's the pylon gate. And I, I wish, like real estate agents, I had like that video that brought you into the next room and the next room. Maybe we can do that sometime uh, when we go this summer. But for now, pictures. And then after the pylon gate, if you can picture this, you ascend into another floor called the people's court. So here's a picture of the people's court. Anyone can go into this space. And then you will go a little bit further and ascend another um, step and you would enter into the priest's court. And in the priest's court, only priests could be in this space. Only people who have devoted their lives to the worship of their gods. That's the only people who could go into this space. And then you would see columns. You can see here in the picture, all these columns and on them they would have a sea of reeds, or the Hebrew is a yam suf. Say yam suf. Yam suf. And that is the sea of reeds. You know what's really interesting? When you read your Bibles in Exodus chapter 14, and it says the people of Israel walked through the Red Sea on dry ground, do you know what the Hebrew is? The yam suf, the sea of reeds. And so they're looking at these images. The people of Israel are being reminded of this pagan temple of the Yom Suf. And when they walk through these pillars, they finally witness the altar. And here's the picture of the altar. And I've shared, I want to keep this picture up. Um, I have shared with you in the past that there were three seasons uh, during ancient, ancient Egypt. A season of inundation, emergence, and harvest. The season of inundation is when the Nile River would swell and fingers of water would come over the sides and temporarily Egypt would be underwater, just a couple feet underwater. And this single feature made this otherwise barren wasteland into the breadbasket of the known world. But the interesting thing about this particular altar is that during the season of inundation, water would fill up this room and what would it look like? a baptism pool. Can you picture that? So you see the people in that picture, it would be up to their waists. They would have a baptism pool. And so what's the plain main thing? What do we see from all these images? We see that baptism is our ordination into priestly ministry. The reformer Martin Luther, he put it this way, whoever comes out of the water can boast that they are already a consecrated priest. And we're going to see more on this next week that instantly when the people of Israel march through on dry ground, instantly they start to worship. Or as Martin Luther says, we see that the first and foremost duty we Christians should perform as priests is to proclaim the wonderful deeds of God. So here's my question for you. We talked about this as a council during our retreat two days ago. We have four pastors here, Marcel, myself, Jason, and Adam. We also have 
674 baptized members. My question to you is how many priests do we have on this campus? Do we have four or do we have 674? I hope you are convinced that the answer to that question is the latter. That ultimately it is the calling of our lives to proclaim the wonderful deeds of God that Jesus Christ is Lord and that he is worthy of our avodah and that we would tell our friends and family members and coworkers and neighbors, come and see what the Lord has done. Well, here at Gateway, it is our sincere hope that you would be built up in your faith and in your walk before Christ through this message and every day as you study God's word. To learn more about our ministry, please visit us at gatewaycrc.org. I'm Jason McNabb. Please join us next time for the weekly sermon at Gateway.